Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on FDA updates on digital health technologies and clinical trials and discussing a draft guidance to help with the compliance process. This podcast is from the 2022 Mobile Tech and Clinical Trials Conference, a sister event to the DFARM conference. For more information about these conferences, our editorial podcasts and webinars, please visit dfarmconference.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah, so as we noted, FDA has leapfrogged all of us, and we'll have a couple of uh, folks joining us virtually here. I see we have Beth and Leonard on the screen, and we have Annie here in person. Um, so just as a quick introduction, I'm Lauren Oliva. I'm the um, Digital Health Regulatory Policy Lead at Biogen. And uh, our session today is really supposed to focus on the FDA draft guidance that was published in December of 2021, so just at the end of last year, focused on the use of digital health technologies in clinical investigations. Um, and I've been pleasantly surprised today to hear that that particular guidance and regulatory uh, raised in most of the sessions and also in a very positive light. So I'm looking forward to a lot of interesting questions. We're going to try to take um, a bit of an interactive format with the session uh, where our FDA colleagues will share a little bit of an update um, on the guidance um, and then also um, hopefully have some of you come to the mic to ask some questions. Um, so before we do the FDA introductions for the panel, I did just want to gauge the room and see how many people are aware that there is an FDA guidance on this topic. I'd assume everyone, if you've been here earlier today, wonderful. And since um, Beth and Leonard can't see us, I think we had everybody but maybe two people who were snacking in the back raise their hand. Um, so of those people, how many of you have actually read any or all of the guidance itself so you're familiar with some of the topics in there? Okay, great. I think that was probably at least two-thirds of the room, so hopefully we'll have some nice conversation today. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to Annie to introduce herself. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, nice to be here in person. Uh, I'm Annie Saha. I'm Assistant Director uh, in the Digital Health Center of Excellence. Uh, we're based in CDRH, but uh, partner across, including with my great colleagues, Leonard and Beth, and so looking forward to uh, the discussion and how uh, we at FDA can facilitate uh, the use of digitally derived endpoints uh, in trials. Uh, so, Leonard, I guess I'll turn it over to you and then Beth. Thanks very much, Danny, and thank you to the organizers for accommodating us remotely. Uh, I'm Leonard Sachs from the Office of Medical Policy in the Center for Drugs at FDA, and I've been involved in a lot of the initiatives to incorporate technology in clinical trials. So I just wanted to frame a little bit of uh, the subsequent discussion very briefly. Can I have the next slide? Uh, without spending much time on this, uh, digital health technologies in terms of clinical trials are usually small, portable um, instruments that can either be worn or carried, and that can make the measurements directly from patients. You can see here a couple of examples. They may be general wellness products, sleep monitors, pedometers, and so on. Uh, there may be things like glucose monitors. Uh, I guess the point that I wanted to emphasize before we get into the guidance is that uh, digital health technologies are really just tools to measure clinical fe features. And I wanted to emphasize that they're measurement tools. Uh, they can be used to help measure a range of different clinical things. They can measure biomarkers like glucose, oxygen saturation, maybe body temperature. They can also be regarded as, they can measure features regarded as clinical outcomes like sleep, seizures, or stamina. And many of these features have already been measured um, using these sorts of technologies, for example, 
body temperature is something that we often measure using, using either mercury thermometers or digital thermometers. And I don't think anyone would quibble on the distance between the difference between those, provided they've been validated. Uh, so, uh, as uh, as tools to make measurements, the issue that's of importance to us is the actual clinical features that they capture. Some of the clinical features we've already looked at many times in clinical trials, but some of them are new, and we wouldn't be able to do them without the help of digital technologies. Uh, just to give you some examples. Uh, now we're able to measure things like the number of steps a patient takes per week. We're able to measure things like nocturnal scratching in patients with dermatological conditions. We're able to measure stride size and stride variance in patients with move, uh, movement disorders. So the significance of these clinical features has nothing to do with the measure, uh, method of measurement, uh, but obviously we, it is very, uh, it's paramount that these clinical features are clinically meaningful. Uh, in general, the clinical features themselves may uh, not be sufficient to make a complete outcome, and sometimes we compile them into something we call a clinical outcome assessment. And a clinical outcome assessment is a clinical assessment which describes how patients feel functions or survive, and uh, some of the ways we test these things are with performance assays. So uh, with that sort of background, uh, just bearing in mind that these are the tools to make these measurements, uh, I'm going to hand over to Beth to take you through uh, some of the principles in the guidance and through some of the other programs which we're involved in at FDA. Beth, yours, next slide. Thank you, Leonard. My name is uh, Beth Kankowski and I uh, work with Leonard in Cedar's Office of Medical Policy. Um, and we've put a lot of effort into um, how can we use these technologies to collect data to support uh, drug development and review in clinical investigations. We've also worked very closely with the Digital Health Center for Excellence and Annie and her team. And um, I'll let Annie take it from here to talk a little bit about um, a little bit of the medical device regulation side of things and how that fits into um, the review of digital health technologies for um, endpoint development. Next slide. Next slide. I, this is not, oh, there we go. All right, I'm just gonna say next slide from now on and not use this thing. Uh, technology, always fun. So um, everyone's favorite, definitions. It can't be an FDA presentation without it. So uh, digital health technologies may or may not meet the definition of medical device. I'm not gonna read the entire statutory uh, definition for y'all, but certainly the main point is uh, if it's intended to be used for the diagnosis of disease or condition and the mitigation, treatment or prevention of disease and uh, not through a chemical action. Next slide. Now whether, uh, this is a question we've gotten a lot and hopefully the guidance does help clarify, um, whether or not a marketing authorization is required, whether it's pre-market approval or clearance to use a DHT in a clinical investigation. And so we talk about in the guidance, we got a lot of comments on this footnote, uh, that devices are, and they're being intended to be used in the clinical investigation are typically exempt from many of the device requirements, including pre-market clearance and approval, as long as the, the clinical investigation itself complies with the applicable requirements uh, under uh, Part A12. Uh, and we at the Digital Health Center of Excellence are happy to help provide any sort of support if you have inquiries or questions about understanding sort of the regulatory status of a digital health technology uh, and a resource that we um, have responded to over 2,000 inquiries in the past few years. Uh, our team 
uh, will respond in generally two weeks or less. So uh, do want to throw that out there for you all. Next slide. Now, if the DHT has a marketing authorization, doesn't mean you can use it in a clinical investigation. And as per probably our usual, it's an it depends question, but ultimately it comes down to fit for purpose and are you measuring that outcome of interest. So you really want to make sure that digital health technology is being used for fit for purpose so that you're actually having the right amount of validation to support its use and that you're actually measuring that endpoint of interest. And generally, if the device is authorized in some way and you're using it for that indication for use that it was authorized for in your clinical investigation, then you aren't going to necessarily need to do any more work or any additional information to uh, use, that use that authorized device. Next slide. And I think I turn it over back to you, Beth. Thank you, Amy. Um, so as Amy just touched upon, uh, really the, the fit for purpose is um, a key point here in that are you using the right technology to measure um, the clinical characteristic or event of interest in your clinical investigation? And so once you have selected that, um, uh, demonstrating that your technology is fit for purpose um, is really going to allow you for success in your clinical investigation. Next slide. Uh, and so one of the ways that we can assess if your DHT is fit for purpose is through the verification and validation process. And so verification is the confirmation by examination and provision of objective evidence that the physical parameter you're measuring um, is accurate and precise over time. And then the validation is that process um, to assess the clinical event or characteristic um, in your proposed patient population. And that's really a key point here in that um, we get a lot of questions about how much can you use from other studies that we've done that the DHC manufacturer did all, did all of these studies before we even ever saw the technology. Um, but it all boils down to what is your um, patient population that you're studying. Uh, Parkinson's uh, patient population is going to have a different gait than a healthy population than just a general elderly population. Duchenne's muscular population. So um, all of those really factor into your verification and validation process. Next uh, slide. Um, and so, as I just mentioned, um, we really understand that a lot of different groups are doing work on a lot of these different technologies, and we, we want to see that data. And you certainly can leverage some of that um, when it's appropriate. Sometimes it will be, sometimes it won't. Uh, as Annie said, it depends. Um, but we're more than happy to have that discussion with you. Next slide. Uh, the guidance goes on and covers many different aspects of your clinical investigation, including participant safety, um, training of both the staff and the participants, uh, the technical support that has to be available for both the uh, study participants and the study staff. Uh, and then uh, through all this, you are collecting a large amount of data. And so 21 CFR part 11 um, comes into play in how you are collecting that data and ensuring the integrity of it. Next slide. Uh, and then another key point that Leonard uh, kicked off our session with is really that endpoint development and that clinical measure that you are collecting data on um, is really your driving force. And um, when you're defining an endpoint here, it really is the same way you define the endpoint for any clinical study you're doing um, and how you're justifying that and then kind of the type and positioning of that 
endpoint um, really falls into where you are in your study and what your um, ultimate goals are. Next slide. So here is uh, the big update that you all are uh, waiting for. Um, the guidance was published in December. There was a 90-day comment period that ended in March of uh, this year. And we received over 600 comments from 47 different uh, groups, ranging from um, nonprofit groups to regulated industry, um, pharmacists, academics, uh, legal and regulatory consulting, private citizens. These comments range from single line edits to full spreadsheets, um, completely analyzing um, all parts of the guidance, um, giving us uh, feedback on what they um, thought would help us. Next slide. Some of the key themes from those comments are the terminology and medical device regulation and verification and validation. And we are working very closely um, with the Digital Health Center of Excellence to go through those um, and make sure we're on the same page within the agency, as well as uh, a lot of work has been done over the past few years. This guidance was a very slow work in progress, um, but a lot of the landscape did actually change while we were writing the guidance. Um, so now is our opportunity to um, assess that and see if we are in the right place um, for the agency moving forward. Um, the endpoint development and the technology versus the clinical measure um, continues to be an area um, where we really need to make sure we are as explicit as uh, possible. And then that really was the other area of um, you all want examples and we understand that. Um, it's still a learning curve where we don't have um, a whole lot of uh, success stories yet, but we're working through those and we'll see what we can include in the guidance moving forward. Um, so that was the end of my update and I give it back to you, Lauren, thank you. Great, thanks so much. I appreciate the, the update from our FDA colleagues there. Um, so what we'll do for the remainder of the time um, is we're going to start off with some q and I have a couple questions ready, um, but I'd appreciate if any of you do have questions after my first couple, if you can come to the mic or flag one of the uh, mic runners. That's the only way um, Beth and Leonard will be able to hear the questions, so we need you speaking into one of the microphones, okay? Um, so maybe I'll, I'll get started. Um, you talked about in the, the update and in the slides um, about the fact that a digital health technology really has to be fit for purpose for, for its context of use. Um, and the guidance does note um, that you're able to leverage some of the previous validation or verification work um, that's done within the context of other studies, potentially by the DHC manufacturer um, or by another third party. And I think that's been a topic that's really, as we've progressed in the field and seen the evolution, has become much more important, um, trying to encourage the uptake of these tools um, and avoiding recreating you know, similar data sets across different studies. Um, so can you explain a little bit more about how um, sponsors might be able to leverage some of this existing data um, more efficiently when they're thinking about their submissions um, and also ensure it meets FDA's needs for regulatory reviews. And maybe we'll go ahead and get started with Annie. Sure, that's a, I know it's a hot questions come up already on discussions earlier today as well. But um, you know, one thing we really do encourage is that if you are doing any studies on DHTs, please publish them. So that way, people know what's been done. You don't have to get into the secret sauce. You don't have to get into the black box or the algorithms. But the more we know about what's being done 
and what has been done so that we don't keep reinventing the wheel, I think is gonna be a really helpful aspect for uh, the field. And also that's where you know activities like through public-private partnerships, consortia, to do a lot of this work in a pre-competitive manner is gonna be really helpful so that way everyone kind of has the same resources and not every company is investing their own time and effort doing the same study over and over again. Uh, and you know, to what Beth spoke about, you can leverage, say, for a gate, starting with you know information that's been done, studies that have been done in a healthy population. Then you might only have to do a smaller usability study or verification validation study in whether it's the Parkinson's population, Duchenne, whatever your specific population is where you're trying to study your clinical investigation. So really trying to leverage as much of what's out there. Um, I think it's going to be really important. And another aspect is, of course, come talk to us when you're starting, uh, and that's going to be really important. Uh, and we do have different mechanisms. Some of them were alluded to earlier. And one I do want to point out that um, some of you all may not be as familiar with is from uh, the device side, we do have our informational QSUB process. And you can actually directly do digital health-related ones to the Digital Health Center of Excellence uh, at the, and just email our mailbox with that information. And you'll get an informal uh, feedback. You're not gonna, it's not going to be like you know, you know your Type C meeting or your ID meeting where you're going to get that formal feedback from us, but at least it's a way to start to get some of the informal conversations and reactions. And uh, I invite Leonard, Beth, anyone wants to add anything else? Yeah, Beth, maybe oh. if you have some thoughts from the the Cedar side on that topic. I think Leonard was going to touch on that. Uh, yeah, I can mention a couple of thoughts. I mean. You know, I think it depends on the specific measurement that's being made, and some of them really don't change in different disease populations. You know, we may, for example, be wanting to measure uh, something like a cough, and uh, what we're interested in is not whether there's uh, a cough is sort of measured, but the frequency of the cough or the intensity or something like that. And, you know, I think it would be a judgment call uh, in discussion with the review divisions to figure out how much they're... Uh, Revalidation has to be done in the population. Obviously, if you're looking at a phenomenon which is different in a disease population, uh, as Beth mentioned, uh, whether you look at if you're looking at steps in patients with Parkinson's disease, uh, validation in that particular population would be important because people walk differently with Parkinson's disease from those who don't have it. So I think uh, these are the sort of um, detailed considerations that would come into each individual application. Um, the other point that's probably just worth mentioning is that uh, FDA has sort of uh, focused on the advantage of these pre-competitive um, qualifications, and we have a couple of different qualification programs, uh, which really are directed at trying to serve that purpose, in other words, not having to reinvent the wheel uh, when a particular uh, digital health technology tool has already been qualified for particular use. So I guess those were thoughts I thought of adding. I don't know. Any other thoughts there, Beth? Anything else? Yeah, covered it. Great. Thank you. No, I, th I think it's really helpful. Obviously, Leonard, as you mentioned, we have some of those existing pathways, qualification and otherwise, but I think just to hear even Annie you speaking about the fact that FDA would encourage and like to have those conversations early about leveraging other sorts of private data is wonderful to hear. Um, so the next question I had was a little bit of a, a pivot to some of the ongoing reauthorization of the User Fee Acts. I know there's quite a bit around digital health technologies in both the PDUFA 7 reauthorization and MDUFA 5. Um, so I wanted to give you all the opportunity to maybe share a couple of those key changes uh, with the group. And if you have any reflections on how you think that might 
um, impact how we're using these DHCs in clinical investigations. We'd be curious to hear your perspectives on that. Thank you, Lauren. Um, we are very excited that hopefully in the next few weeks, Congress will pass UFA 7, and this will give us a lot of authority and uh, demonstrates our commitment to using these technologies for um, drug review and development. Um, FDA has a number of commitments that actually have to be fulfilled by the quarter two of fiscal year 2023, which is actually uh, in March, which is less than six months away now. So we've actually gotten a pretty good start on these and are well on our ways to fulfilling those commitments. Um, the first one will be uh, publishing a framework document that outlines how we're going to fulfill these commitments over the next five years. Um, there is a DHT steering committee that is um, uh, going to oversee all of these commitments, and that will have representatives from CEDAR, CEDARH, um, Digital Health Center of Excellence, as well as CBER. Um, and then the last one is that we will hold a public meeting um, by the end of uh, March of next year um, to start to discuss and have the interactive discussion between um, all of you and us on uh, where we should go with digital health technologies. Uh, and then over the next five years, um, we'll have some demonstration projects. The rest of the public meetings, um, we'll publish more guidance on DHTs. Um, we'll publish a guidance on regulatory considerations for prescription drug use related software. Um, we need to finalize those guidances. Um, there's some specific information on expanding the capacity for review. Um, and consistency across the agency regarding DHTs. And then finally, um, kind of bundled with some of the larger IT capabilities, um, there's some uh, items for tracking DHT submissions as well as uh, development of the cloud to manage this large volume of data that is collected for DHTs that the FDA is gonna wanna see when they review your application um, that included uh, DHT data. And I'll let Annie speak to uh, the Medufma commitments. Yeah, so similarly uh, in Medufa, we have um, continuing obviously our digital health program, so continuing to build on and drafting uh, and finalizing the guidances that we've put out, like clinical decision support, uh, et cetera, but then also uh, similarly staffing up, so building our, continuing to build our expertise in wearables, sensors, you know, AI, ML, patient-generated health data. Uh, there's also commitments related to patient science and engagement, which has a lot of uh, crossover with digital health in terms of how do you leverage especially uh, patient-generated data that's coming from digital health technologies as well, uh, which also does include also a workshop that we would be doing. I don't remember the exact, I think it was like FY24, but don't quote me on that. It's all public in the commitment letter. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, I guess similar to how we've all been building up our shops and expanding our expertise, it's great to see the agency doing the same thing. Maybe I'll just put in a quick plug. We are hiring, so if anyone's interested uh, or yes. you know people. And remote roles, Annie was telling me right before the session. Yeah. So for those of you maybe not located in the Silver Springs area. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and open it up and see if anyone is interested. There was a lot of interest and commentary on this guidance earlier today. So I'd love for any brave soul to come to the mic or flag down one of the runners to, to ask the first audience question. And if not, I have my laundry list over here. But... Thank you for a great session so far. Um, I'm interested to know if the FDA is planning to follow up with maybe a uh, 
guidance on decentralized trials, or is this the guidance that encompasses everything? Uh, I'm happy to start with that. Yeah, we definitely are. We have it as, uh, as one of the published gui the guidances in our list of uh, planned guidances for this year, and we hope we'll get it out by then. Uh, you know, I think it's a very good point because uh, decentralized trials and digital health technologies uh, work together. Uh, way back, administratively, we sort of separated these two programs because decentralized activities can happen without digital health technologies, but obviously the two work together to make decentralized activities more uh, global and more, uh, more comprehensive. So, yeah, the answer is yes, we definitely hope to have that published fairly soon. And um, it'll, there'll certainly be some sort of uh, cross-play between these two guidances. Anyone, anyone else have comments on our PCT guidance? I think you covered it. Okay. So I'll go ahead and uh, just move on to one of the first questions then. Um, so can you, I think as I read through the guidance, one of the things that caught my attention, I think you, you talked about it earlier in some of your comments, was the fact that there's, you know, everything is a, a bit, it depends as you get into this. There's only so much you can do in a high-level guidance. Um, and I saw that, you know, the guidance does state, as it often does, that uh, sponsors should get, engage early and often to talk about their programs. You mentioned that earlier, Annie. Um, but oftentimes there is a bit, for these early stage programs, there's limited time in the FDA meetings on the agenda. You're talking about a lot of different topics, and especially if you're using a digital health technology to look at a, a novel endpoint, there's a lot of complexity there. So do you have any advice for sponsors as they're thinking about the fact that these programs, you know, digital is just one component of the broader program, how they can think about sort of engaging and getting that iterative and kind of early feedback from the agency. And I think a few of the meeting types were discussed earlier today, but if you have any other thoughts from some of the recent interactions, I think that would be interesting for everyone to hear more about. Um, and I can go ahead and maybe hand it over to Beth to, to get us started with that. Sure. Um, CEDAR does have kind of a prescribed um, type of meeting based on where you are in the development program. Um, and the, the best advice I can give you is to um, have start those discussions early. If this is something you plan on doing farther along in your phase two or phase three study, um, start talking to us early on um, and first identifying the appropriate clinical measure that you're going to look at it in your study. Um, and once you have agreement on that, then you can talk about how you're actually going to measure um, that clinical event. Um, and then once you have your technology, then you can start talking about the verification and validation process um, to make sure that we're all on the same page. Um, before you have invested years of research and done all of this verification and validation testing on your own, um, we want to be on the same page as you. So CEDAR does have somewhat of a prescribed process based on where you are in development, but there is also always the critical path innovation meeting um, pathway um, when you have broader early phase uh, questions. Um, we certainly entertain these discussions in that forum as well. Great. Um, Annie, Leonard, anything to add? Well, I think I, I covered some of the CDRH programs earlier, but certainly um, we were happy to chat if you've got specific questions. And then if you are looking to actually 
actually get your device authorized for a specific you know, indication for use. Uh, we will be as part of Medufa 5 um, doing what we call the TPLC advisory pilot uh, program um, as a way sort of almost like a concierge type of service where we are going to be working in a pilot area to sort of help developers, especially small companies and others who may not know all of the uh, regulatory pathways. We certainly have that, especially a lot on the device industry side. Great, great preview. Lauren, one other thing I thought of is that um, I did allude to earlier that we are working on a tracking mechanism. So if you can include in your cover letter that you are using a digital health technology in your submission, mm -hmm. then specifically ask to have the Office of Medical Policy with Dr. Sachs, myself, and Dr. Robinson, including in that discussion that those health facilitated as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, great advice. And I see uh, Michelle at the mic. Hey, thank you again for... Um, it's a great opportunity to engage with FDA and for this panel discussion and great presentation. And um, so, like I said earlier, um, I've been in this uh, field for quite some time and I really view this, uh, this draft guidance is a great like Christmas gift <laughs> that a lot of us are waiting for. And uh, thanks again for providing a lot of clarity. So one question, I, I wonder if uh, you already received a lot of comments um, about, is about um, the source data. So I think um, in, the, in the guidance you specifically called out that if uh, in a protocol um, we are asking um, the investigator to review the data, I think um, the format of the source data that uh, will require the investigator in the site to archive, um, can you comment about the, the format? Because you know, especially in some of the scenarios, um, the data might still be very exploratory and uh, it requires a lot of back-end uh, reanalysis and, and algorithm development aspect. In those scenarios, uh, do you expect that, um, the site to also archive the raw data as a source data and eventually having some kind of a um, reconciliation between what a sponsor analyzed for and then uh, what's gonna be shared with the investigator? Uh. I'm happy to take a first crack at it and maybe uh, basically back me out from any issue having thoughts. So I think, I mean, these are all very relevant questions and they're questions, as you can imagine, that we've been agonizing over within, uh, within the FDA. Uh, I think this, the, um, the concept of raw data is a relative sort of thing. Uh, you know, at its very rawest form, I mean, raw data may just be voltage changes that happen from various transducers. And, without any context, I don't think that would mean anything to anybody. So in the guidance, we suggested that provided the digital health technology in use has been verified and validated, uh, the, the data that we would be interested in is the output of the device. Uh, so it depends, you know, I mean, if, if the output of the device is from a glucose monitor is a continuous glucose stream, that's what we would expect to see. If the output of a validated uh, accelerometer device to measure steps is steps, uh, that's what we would be expected to see. Uh, but I think, again, you know, there's always the, the it depends clause. I mean, some things are complicated to measure, and we would want to presumably see more information in just uh, one or two outputs from a device. Uh, just to give you an example, I mean, if we're measuring something like um, sleep, uh, where uh, polysomnography or something like that is in use, 
uh, we may need more than just the, the just the report from the device that the patient was asleep or awake. We may want to see um, some of the other things that show uh, physiological changes and so on. So I think again, you know, it does depend on the situation. But uh, as a general rule, uh, the information that's put out by the device is what we want to see. And um, Another point, just to touch on the issue of the algorithms, I think we recognize that a lot of commercial wellness devices uh, have proprietary algorithms. And uh, though that access, the, the raw data would not be available from those devices. And we feel that, you know, if the devices are validated and they work well, uh, there's no reason that they shouldn't be used for clinical trials. So uh, I don't know if that gives you a slightly better uh, hold on what, uh, what sort of data is needed. Uh, Beth, do you have any thoughts or any? I think you covered it well. I just um, would just touch on that there is the um, draft part 11 guidance on um, question and answers that was published in 2017 that touches on mobile technologies and clinical investigations. And since that was a draft, we are working on um, updating that draft. And I think a lot of um, the types of questions we've seen through the docket and, and this type of question um, will hopefully be addressed in that draft when it is uh, published again. That's, that's great. Thank you so much. And look forward to seeing the, uh, more of the draft guidance clarity come out. Thank you. Thanks, Michelle. So any other questions? Over 600 comments, they're working on finalizing the guidance. So this is a, a rare opportunity to maybe put some bugs in the FDA's ear. <laughs> I see someone coming to the mic. Hi. It seems to me that one of the major sort of barriers in, uh, in digital health technology adoption is the proliferation of many, many different endpoints and metrics and measures. Um, is the FDA doing anything to sort of encourage standardization and commonization of those metrics? Uh, maybe I'll start. And, uh, well, certainly, I think that's a lot of it is also part of our efforts in patient-focused drug development, or page, I try to use medical product development since I'm from devices. Uh, but yeah, thinking about you know what is the right measure, what's the right outcome that you want to do instead of there being you know 12 different options. Let's try to think about you know what does make sense, and I think that's also where different activities, whether it's through uh, you know public-private partnerships, et cetera, where you can bring people together to really talk through what are you know what are the most important things that we should be measuring, rather than just doing the same old historical measures that we've been doing forever that no one even really likes. Yeah, perhaps I can just add that, I mean, I think it's a very central question. You know, there are obviously uh, innumerable different metrics that you can use to uh, analyze uh, data, for example, activity data and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're in a position or anybody else is to declare one uh, particular metric as the best. And I think we're all, you know, in the discovery phase here. But I think it's important, obviously, when uh, companies develop these, uh, these uh, metrics uh, to come out with something that's sensitive, that's specific, and, you know, that's uh, convincingly reliable. So um, I think those are the general principles. And in the, in the uh, guidance, we've articulated some of the general ideas, 
for making sure that measurements are justified. They should sort of move in the same direction as traditional measurements or uh, similar measurements that are used for the same condition. Uh, it should be possible to show that drugs that we know are active uh, against the given condition, uh, or that the effect of those drugs can be detected using the new technology. Um, another thought is that it's important to be able to show um, that, uh, or perhaps put it this way, uh, superiority studies, again, are going to be more convincing because uh, the only difference between the two arms would be the treatment. So non-inferiority studies may be a little bit more challenging using digital health technologies. But I think those are the thoughts. To find a metric and um, an output that is sensitive and specific and uh, that's reliable is probably the challenge for all of us. I mean, Annie, you mentioned about some of the, the public-private partnerships and collaborations. Are there any particular examples you'd want to highlight or kind of thoughts in terms of where um, industry and other, you know, people who are in the audience here might want to engage as they're thinking about sort of bringing together those concepts of interest? I think earlier today there was quite a bit of talk about the pre-competitive versus the competitive space in terms of where does sort of that measurement science end versus some of the, you know, um, more specific private opportunities begin? Well, I, I don't want to necessarily endorse any one group over another, so I'm going to make that disclaimer up front, so, um, but I will say, you know, certainly um, there's groups like the Critical Path Institute and like the Parkinson's work that's being done under that. Um, DIME, uh, you know, we're also a member of not just DIME as a whole, but also um, the Data CC, the Data Collaborative Community that they've launched. And, you know, CRH, we had a strategic priority and are continuing to uh, engage with collaborative communities uh, as a method of really being able to advance uh, the field. And the Data CC group actually also put out, if folks hadn't seen it, like a toolkit on how to also think about digital measures from an inclusive perspective and how do you develop and deploy measures that are actually uh, going to be inclusive across different patient populations, you know, not just thinking about age, race, ethnicity, it's sort of the usual, but really delving further into other types of places. But I think those are the types of activities, and certainly I think you see bringing resources together and bringing different groups together and, you know, bringing the patients in with the providers, with uh, the different KOLs, with the industry is really where we're going to probably be able to see uh, the most benefit. Definitely. Yes, and certainly not to endorse any particular groups. I just know my, my colleagues certainly get excited when they see FDA is, is engaged with those groups and encourages them to participate and make time and resource for that. Um, not seeing any other questions right now, Leonard. I wanted to go back to, to some of what you were discussing before around the, the endpoints and specifics around that. One of the, the sections that I thought was most interesting in the guidance was around novel endpoints and justification of, of clinical meaningfulness. Um, and I think one of the things, especially coming from, from a neurology organization and thinking about some of the types of endpoints we might look at, sometimes there's a very direct correlation to feels, functions, and survives. And as we're thinking about creating basically a digitalized version of an existing accepted endpoint. But then there's other um, areas, and I'm not going to give a specific example, but one of the talks earlier today was about vocal assessments and intonation. Some of those things are a little less easy to translate to how a patient feels and functions and survives. Um, so I think, as, especially as we're talking and kind of couching this in the digital space, do you have any advice to, 
to those in the audience who may be preparing submissions for some of those harder to measure, hard, harder to conceptualize concepts about how they can sort of justify that clinical meaningfulness and think about it as they're designing their protocols and, and creating their, their clinical development plans? Well, I think it's a very good question. I mean, it's something that we collectively, both you and, uh, and we at FDA, have to face in making a scientifically justified assessment of what a clinical meaningful measurement is. You know, I think there are various considerations. If you talk about a voice print, uh, and I mean, this is not, uh, I'm uh, just providing my own personal views here, but if you look talking about a voice print, uh, obviously it would be important to know uh, to what extent that represents the totality of the disease. And, uh, you know, if, I think it would be important to show um, uh, in some sort of comparative structure that you're getting the same data from your voice print as you would be from some more uh, comprehensive assessment. And, uh, you know, if you can't show that, it may not really encompass what uh, would be a clinically meaningful uh, aspect of the disease. So I think it would take some sort of careful thought to see what you're actually getting, whether you're getting just a little snapshot or a piece of the disease may, that may not really reflect the activity of the drug, or whether what you're getting is really representative of the whole disease. Uh, you know, so, uh, so other measurements seem to be a little bit more comprehensive and digestible as functional assessments. Uh, you know, certainly actigraphy seems promising uh, because it does uh, give a more immediate read on how functional the patient is. It seems to have more um, uh, face appeal as, uh, as a meaningful reflection of a drug but uh, again, I think each measurement would have to be um, discussed in turn and uh, you'd have to look at the general uh, sort of way in which it reflects the, the overall response of the disease. A little I think bit I would of a circuitous say, response, those I are my thoughts. I would just say probably just boils down to follow good measurement science. There we go. And as I see Dan wandering onto the stage, Leonard, thank you. That was a great, great answer and great context for us to think about. Um, thank you to our FDA colleagues for joining virtually and in person. And I'll, I'll hand it over to Dan then. Yeah, th thank you so much. For more information about these conferences, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit dfarmconference.com and that's dpharmconference.com. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast.